Our scripture reading this morning is Mark 7, 1 through 23, so I'll give you a moment to find that. Mark 7, 1 through 3. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again. So glad you're here to open the Word of God with us uh, this morning. Uh, and as Jack said, I do, I do want to encourage you to read through uh, that email on our, our calling of, of Robin as our children's director. I couldn't be more thrilled or ask for a more uh, qualified candidate. Uh, but as Jack said, that email does tell the story. It's a unique situation, obviously. But as you'll read through, um, there were many steps that were taken, even with myself, removing myself from the process entirely, actually. Uh, I encourage you to read through that to see uh, what diligence Jack and our search team took uh, in this process. But I am excited for our children's ministry moving forward. We're going to be figuring it out, too, as the couple as we go along. It's obviously a unique situation for us, so we ask for uh, grace as well as we navigate new territory and new waters uh, together as well. But I am thrilled. I hope you are, too. We want to provide 
the most um, caring, loving, robust children's ministry we can here at Bethany Church for families and for children. We're committed to passing the gospel on to the next generation and partnering with families in deep ways to make lasting impact on your children as we uh, help people follow Jesus. And that means little people too. Um, So that's our goal here at Bethany Church. Well, at first look at this passage today, as we come to Mark 7, uh, you might be saying, what does this have to do with us? What does this passage have to do with us? Jesus is in this conflict with the religious leaders of his day over hand washing. You might be thinking, what does it have to do with us? We don't have a religious tradition of hand washing and, uh, you know, some, uh, re- these religious observances like the, the washing of hands. Uh, I, I don't know, you might ask my wife, she might say, I might have a little religious hand washing activity. Some of you do, you, you, you like to have clean hands. Some of us use Purell, like it's got magic powers in it too. I know that, some of you do. What is really going on here today in this passage? Mark relates to us a situation where uh, a debate about cleanliness and dietary laws were connected to uh, ritual or spiritual purity. In the second century AD, this book called the Mishnah, it was called. It was a compilation of uh, Jewish uh, oral laws, so not the ones written, oral laws, said this, tradition is a fence around the law. So this Mishnah contained all these traditions and sort of laws around laws. Offense, you might call it. And while the intentions of these leaders that wrote the Mishnah and came up with these laws were probably well intended, after the years, they became more than just a fence around the law. They became this this massive wall, this overwhelming list of responsibility and tasks. Here's just to hear about what happened at their time. So the Sabbath was to be a day of rest, right? That was uh, given by God, a law. And so at this time, the mission had come up with some rules that you couldn't look in the mirror on the Sabbath because you might see a gray hair. And if you saw a gray hair, you might want to pluck it and that'd be work on the Sabbath. Yeah. How about, uh, here's another one. In our language of the day, I think the mission says a scarf, but in our language of the day, you couldn't carry a box of Kleenexes from upstairs to downstairs. That would be work. But you could put the Kleenex in your pocket, walk downstairs, and then blow your nose. That was okay. But the most absurd by this time were the rituals around cleansing, around purity that we're talking about today. There were 35 pages on how to wash your dishes. Hand that to your kids before you tell them to wash the dishes. (laughs) Here, take this. This will help you. But it came from a biblical command, this idea of washing the hands. Here it was. Aaron and his sons from Exodus are to wash their hands and feet with water. Aaron and his sons were the, the priests. So the requirement at this time actually for hand washing uh, it was really only for priests, according to the word. But by Jesus' time, everyone was doing it, and they were doing it all the time. Everyone was obsessing over ritual washing and cleansing. Well, what were these laws for at first? Why would God give this and the other dietary and, and, and other cleanliness kind of laws. Why would he do it? They were from God. They were good for his people. Number one, there was a hygiene element to them, but really more than that, they served as a visual aid. This idea of being pure and impure and needing to be clean, these laws served as a visual aid to show people that they actually were really spiritually and morally unclean. 
and needed to be cleaned, cleansed, to enter the presence of a holy God. So there was a good purpose to them. There was a good reason behind them. And it wasn't really just really about hygiene. It's the point of the fact that we're spiritually unclean and we need somebody to clean us because God is holy. So they were good. They were good laws. So if you touched a dead animal or a diseased person or even mold at this time, you were considered ritually impure uh, and you needed spiritual purification before you could come or enter God's perfect presence or sometimes even the community. Really clear visual picture. You might think, wow, this is, that's crazy. That's you know, legalistic. It just doesn't even like, ring a bell with me. But before we judge them too harshly, think about this. How many of you cleaned up before your first date with somebody you really were excited to go out with? Or cleaned your car out before you went and picked them up on a date? I had trouble with that one, but um, I should have done it. <laughs> But we do, we do those kind of things. Or how many of you would go to an interview for the first time with a white t-shirt with a stain on it or, you know, a bunch of stains? We just, we wouldn't do that. So it's not that strange, actually, to think about God requiring to clean, to clean themselves up. It's not that strange. But by Jesus' day, the fence was so big, these, these oral traditions, they forgot that all that external ritual purity was to point to the fact of an internal problem. That's why it was there, but they had totally forgotten that. It was all external to them. If you wash your hands, as we're going to see in our passage today. They were just legalists, really, and what's what we're going to talk about today, legalism. Keep this law, and you're good with God. Do this, and you'll be clean with Him. Now, Jesus, as we're going to see, He agreed with them. They were unclean before God, as we are too. And he agreed that they needed to be clean before they could stand before God, but he absolutely disagreed with the source of their uncleanliness and the solution we're going to see today. And the solution too. It wasn't just add another external law. It was something internal that they had forgotten about. It was internal. Hear this. What Jesus says today, his inside-out language, it's quite possible from this passage that these are the most revolutionary words that Jesus ever spoke. Ever spoke, probably, that turned the world upside down in ways at that time that nobody could ever understand. Probably the most revolutionary words Jesus ever spoke today in this passage. Why is it so much easier for us to focus on external goodness, external righteousness, than the state of our hearts. That's what Jesus is going to get at. This morning we're going to seek Jesus' answer to that question by looking at three symptoms of legalism and then the result of living that way. Okay, so three symptoms of legalism and the result of living that, that way. So grab your outline. Hopefully you've got it there. We'd love to have those for fill-ins to help people out that are visual and like to write to learn. I hope you got your Bibles open as well to Mark chapter 7. As we look at the first symptom of legalism is this. Legalism is an external effort to make a spiritual impression. It's an external effort to make a spiritual impression. 
So again, a group of Pharisees comes to Jesus. We've seen this in Mark multiple times already, and we've been calling this group the Special Council of Investigation of Young Rabbis. That's their job. That's their, their goal of existence while Jesus is on the earth. This, this council of investigation, they're sent to challenge Jesus. That's their, that's their job. That's their goal. And hopefully bring him down. That's their one motive. And they do challenge him. Look at verse uh, 5 of chapter 7. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat with defiled hands. They come directly to him as they are watching his disciples as they eat and they challenge him. And it's in a sense they're saying to him, Jesus, if you're so close with God, why don't your disciples wash like us, the elite spiritual class? I mean, we're the examples. We're living this way. Are you so close to God and your disciples? They don't wash too? They're saying this to him. They're challenging him. You're that close and that's how they live? Our traditions. These traditions that, that went beyond Scripture really were there to establish sort of a, a, a superiority. And that is what legalism is. It's external goodness that's supposed to leave a spiritual impression on others. But more importantly... God. That's the goal. Their focus was was outward. What will others see? How will they interpret this action? What, What favor will it grant me with God? All of those things they were thinking. Well, before we think, we can look at that and go, it's so many years ago and hundreds and a couple thousand years ago. I, we might think, I'm not a legalist or we don't do these kind of things still or function that way. Let's think for a moment even, we're going to think on a world level and then a personal level real quick. So on a world level, even even you think everyone knows when you look at the world, there's something profoundly wrong with the world. And everyone has their worldview and their philosophy or their opinion or law that needs to be implemented on how to fix it, don't we? That's just the way the world functions. And you think last week, maybe you saw it and made national news, the protests in Portland last week. Uh, between a a far-right prayer group and a far-left anti-fascist group. Two groups now. One would claim to probably be really religious. One would claim to probably be pretty irreligious. And yet, they all have their views on what's wrong with the world, their own solutions, and they're willing to scream at each other across, across police lines from a place of moral superiority, both of them. That's legalism. If they would just be more like us, if we could just shout them down, the world be fixed. Legalism is rampant for the religious and the irreligious. Then, you know, the Pharisees are doing something similar with Jesus as they come to him. They had their opinion of him, and all they needed to do was confirm it. They were making an external effort to make a spiritual impression. We see it on a world level, but how about personal level now? You might think, well, I'm not a legalist. But I would say even Christians, and sometimes even Christians, or those who grew up in the church, can struggle with this more than anybody, myself included. You might think, well, I don't know. I don't, is that me? Well, how many of us have a great fear? Here's some questions for us to kind of self-analyze a little bit. 
How many of us have a great fear, if they only knew what I was really like on the inside, they'd drop me instantly or reject me? Why is it that so many of us can't stop and and rest when God even commands us to rest and relax? If I could just achieve this, we say, then I will rest, and then we achieve it, and what do we do? We don't rest. We're on to the next thing. What's driving us to do that? What's driving you to do that? Why can't we sit still for even an hour? Have you ever asked yourself that? Or is there another one? Why is it that some of us absolutely can't handle the thought of disappointing someone? So much so that we allow ourselves sometimes to be exploited even and used. We've got no boundaries because we're so afraid of disappointing someone. Why do so many people obsess over their, the image they portray on social media and how many likes they get? Why are you riddled sometimes maybe with self-doubt or anxieties? Here's another one. Why are some of us so concerned with the neatness and order and cleanliness of our house and stuff that we close ourselves off from hospitality? Or fall into a major panic when the pillows aren't lined up or the remote's a little out of place, you know? We do that, don't we? Why are some of us sitting here today thinking that what makes me okay with God is my church attendance, my Bible reading, my devotional life, or even my serving? What's the root of all of this? It's that each and every one of us has that temptation inside of us to find validation, to find security, to find ultimate hope in our external performance. Now, I'm not saying on the surface any of these things are bad, like church service or church attendance, Bible reading, taking care of your things. It's not. But deep down inside, we know, you and I know, we are not clean. Something is wrong with you. And if I can just do this, then I'll be somebody. Then I'll be secure. Then maybe God will finally show me favor, answer my prayers, point me in the right direction, give me the answer I was hoping for. We're obsessing over keeping everything on the outside neat and orderly, when in reality, what we look like inside is more like that junk drawer in your kitchen. Here's mine. The picture's coming up. There it is. It's got a bit of everything in there, doesn't it? By the way, if you need a plastic crocodile, I got you covered. <laughs> or a sticker that says, rule the seas, little mermaid there, yeah. I mean, that's the reality. And don't, even be, don't be, uh, even be uh, fooled. The receipt box doesn't have receipts in it. <laughs> Batteries, other stuff, even boxes inside of boxes that are messy. It's functional legalism. External appearances, and yet the inside sometimes can be a mess, can it? We're pretty good at that. Now, toddlers, they're not so good. What's going on, on the inside? What do you know? It's pretty much right here, isn't it? But by the time you become a teenage, well, adults, uh, you, <laughs> let's say adults, sorry if any teens in here, but we, as we grow, you, you can manage that, can't you? And so you can be seething on the inside and going, so good to see you. You know, we're just good at that. We can manage that. We become, we become good at our external appearance. 
And what's the result of living this way? Here it is. Jesus is going to tell the Pharisees in a moment. The result is this. It sets me, it sets you and I in competition with one another, and it alienates us from God. That's what legalism does. It sets us in competition with one another and alienates us from God. If you're looking for your self-worth from any of the stuff we talked about, your ultimate self-worth now, you compare, you compete, you size somebody up in 10 seconds in front of you, you can do that. And you compare and compete. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Aren't you glad we're not like those dirty disciples that don't wash their hands? It, alien, it, it, it makes us in competition with each other. But it also alienates us from God. Look at verses 6 through 8. Look what it says. And he said to them, Well, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it's written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me in teaching and teaching as uh, doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus has some harsh words for them. He does. He says some harsh things to them. He says Isaiah was right as he quotes Isaiah and, and calls them hypocrites even. In all their concern with being clean before God, they turned it into what he called vanity. An empty religious show is what they were doing. He says it's vain. Sure, they could say the right things with their lips or wash their hands the right way. They could wear the right clothes, show up at the right time. But the state of their hearts was like that junk drawer. A mess. Confused. Dirty. In need of something greater. Is that you this morning? It's a hard question, but the best question you could ever ask. Is that you this morning? Nobody will see it. Nobody will see it. It's on the inside. But obviously Jesus did, didn't he? He saw right through it. He does with us too. They were more concerned with what others thought or the tradition than the Word of God, Jesus even says. Remember, it was only Aaron and the priests uh, who were to wash like, uh, with their hands like that, but so, as everyone was doing it all of a sudden. You catch the irony there. They were trying to impress Jesus with something that God didn't even command of them. It was just for Aaron and the priests. That's where legalism takes us. Competition with others and alienation from God. That's the first symptom of legalism. It's that external effort to make a spiritual impression, and that was the result. But here's our second one. Legalism is more concerned with the rule than with the Word, meaning the Word of God. Legalism is more concerned with the rule than with the Word of God. Not all tradition is bad. We have to say that. I I firmly believe that. In fact, as a Christian, we are a people of history. We are a people of tradition. And so there are many things that are very good about our past, about our tradition, that help us realize we're even connected to history, like uh, singing a doxology, um, reading the Scripture publicly. Uh, These are all good things that actually root us in the past. So not all tradition is bad. The problem is when our laws or our traditions Replace the Word of God in importance. That's the problem. That's when it gets really dangerous. And that's what happened with some of the people in Jesus' day. 
As the passage goes on to say, Jesus tells the story how God has commanded his people, I think the fifth commandment, uh, to honor your father and mother, obey your parents. Uh, that is a commandment from God, which means uh, in, in proximity, relationally, and even more importantly, financially even it means. And in Jesus' day, as he told this story, um, they had created their own rule by this time. You know, as long as you go to your parent was their rule, and you've got money and they need help, as long as you go to them and say, hey, I'm so sorry, I, we're not going to be able to help you out. The money is, Corbin was the word, means for God. The, you know, it's for God, for God's purposes. I'm sorry, we can't help you out. As long as you said that, you are off the hook. You were off the hook. Now, how you define it's for God probably was up to your own interpretation, which is where the problem probably came up. As long as you said that, was their tradition by that time, you, you were off the hook for God's fifth commandment, one of the Ten Commandments. They rejected God's command and created their own tradition, their own rule, their own words, their own logic. That's what won out on the day. And the Word of God, by doing so, it was rejected. It was voided. You know, we think, wow, how difficult to live by all these man-made rules. They had rules, even stronger rules than the Word of God. Stronger rules than that. And you think, wow, how difficult it is. How hard to be. 35 rules on washing dishes. But it actually made it easier. It actually made living the life of a, 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 a person in Israel, a Jew, a child of God, you might say, it actually made it easier. If I can keep all these man-made rules, I can avoid the real issue. My heart. What's on the inside of me? And we know this. Checklists, quantifiable things that we can look at and check off, they're always easier than examining the real state of what's going on inside. So they're actually making it easier in some ways. And so the legalist sets this quantifiable new tradition or law or standard and they seek to measure themselves against it. And so we establish a tradition of our own, a rule of our own, really to meet our own needs is what they were doing. To feel superior, to feel good, to stand out and be able to look down on others as the, as the Pharisees were doing. Well, what's the result when we do that? It causes me, it causes us to manipulate God's Word for my gain as they did. To manipulate God's word for my gain. So the Pharisees, they were disobeying God. Or the people were at this time as they set up that rule. Hey, if you just say it's for God, you don't have to help your elderly parents out. You're off the hook. And they were displeasing God. But all the while, because they'd set up this new rule, they felt pretty good about themselves because it met their standard. It's a good question for us to ask. Where have you and I or in your own life allowed tradition to take the place of God's Word? Where with what are you more concerned that you think uh, with, that gives you value, meaning, security, worth? All the while ignoring the deeper issue, the deeper problem of your heart. And what the Word of God wants to say to your heart. Brings us to our third, final symptom today. Here's what legalism does. It misdiagnoses the entire problem of humanity. The entire problem of humanity. 
is misdiagnosed. Your problem, my problem, your neighbor's problem, the people on the other side of the world's problem, all humanity now. It misdiagnoses that problem, but it also misdiagnoses the solution. The whole thing. It gets the whole thing wrong. Jesus goes on in this passage to uh, unpack his little parable that he told and uh, as he calls the people to himself. And as I said, probably says the most radical, revolutionary thing he ever said. He says essentially to them, you've misdiagnosed it. You have missed it entirely. You've totally not seen your problem. You've missed the issue. And yet you're able to stand and say, your disciples don't do it the way we do it. And you've come up, he says to them, with an empty solution too. It was a tragic state that they were in. It's a tragic state you and I are in apart from Christ. It's tragic. Here's what he says. Look at chapter 7, verse 14 and 15. Here's that revolutionary statement. And when he called the people to him again and said to them, he said to them, hear me all of you. So he's saying, listen up and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him, can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. What's Jesus saying to them? What's he saying to you and I today through that revolutionary statement? He's telling them, you think your problem is just something external. You think your problem is just you need to be better or you need to do more. Or you need to just clean up your act. And he says, I'm telling you your problem is so much deeper than that. The problem isn't the other person. The problem isn't the other side in an argument. The problem isn't um, the problem. <laughs> the problem isn't the, person, the people next to you in traffic. That's not it. The problem, Jesus says, is you. It's inside you. That's what he's saying. It's inside you. It's your heart, Jesus is saying. The problem isn't just keep a few more rules. The problem is the very core of who you are. When the Bible speaks of the heart, which it does over, I think, 900 times, it's, it's really speaking of, you might call it, the causal core, like the center of who you are that drives you, your will, your emotions, your thoughts, your hungers, your desires. That's when we say heart. When the Bible says heart, that's what we're getting at. Your causal core. Uh, the thing that function and, and uh, makes you function and drives you. The core of who you are, Jesus says. That's where the problem resides. Not in washing your hands. The story from the early 1900s um, that the Times, the paper in London in the early 1900s, the Times of London, they realized, you know, this uh, enlightenment, this whole progress thing, look at humanity, we're still a mess. And so they put this question out to a bunch of famous authors and philosophers, and they, they said to them, the question they put out is, what is wrong with the world? It's a question 
Yeah, so they're, oh, that's a can of worms, right? They put it, and I'm sure they got tons of different answers. All kinds of, you know, probably this politician and that uh, view and that philosophy and that system of economics and this and that and all these different problems came in. And there was this man named G.K. Chesterton. He was a, a Christian theologian and writer, brilliant guy. And he wrote back to them, Dear sir, I am. The question, what was the problem with the world? He wrote back, Dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's a man who realizes that all his outside, all his stuff is really just legalism. And the real problem is deeper. The problem with humanity, the problem with the world is our own individual hearts. That's what he was saying. And that's really what Jesus is saying. He understood, Chesterton understood Jesus' words. They probably read it and was like, what? How dare he say that? You know? Or in a British accent, how dare? Yeah, I could do that. <laughs> Jesus' words, they're graphic. They're graphic words and clear. He says, what you eat can't make you unclean. You eat it and it comes out the other side. That's what Jesus is saying. It's graphic. It's meant to be graphic. He says, what comes from inside you that shows who you truly are? It's not necessarily what you do on the outside. It's who you are on the inside is what Jesus is saying. And it's clear in Jesus' words, who you are on the inside will reveal itself. I will, we will, will reveal ourselves over time. Look at verses 20 to 23. It's the end of our passage. And he said to them, he's kind of rephrasing what he had already said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, and covenant, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things, he says it again, come from within. And they defile a person. Do you see it? The problem you and I have is so much deeper than what we can solve. It's, it's so much deeper than what you and I have. What Jesus is saying there is that, okay, you, you get in an argument with somebody. They're frustrating you. They're rattling you. Uh, we tend to go, if you just wouldn't, you know, this or that. What Jesus is saying is that if anger comes out of you, the anger was already inside of you. That's just a symptom. That's just an external symptom or a sin. There's always a sin beneath the sin. That's at the heart level. So pride comes out of you. Or a boasting. Why? It's already with inside of you. That's what Jesus is saying. That's why this was so revolutionary for people. Because they just thought, hey, if we can just wash our hands, we're good. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Your problem is another level even deeper than that. It's heavy stuff. Do you know one place in the Bible Jesus says, uh, you know, sin is so serious that it's such a problem for you that if your eye is to cause you to sin or your hand, you should, you should gouge it out or cut it off. I mean, it's kind of hyperbole, but he's, the point is that sin is serious in your life. What's the, pro- what's, what's, the, what's the solution if the problem is your heart? can't cut that out, can you? No matter what you try, 
what I try, there is no external solution to deal with your soul. You can't try and be good or religious or pray a lot or read your Bible or even attend church. Some of us know this. We've tried so hard, so hard to be right, to be good, to be holy, and yet you still find yourself racked with guilt. You still know something's wrong on the inside. Or you don't have joy or peace. You're always worried. You don't find yourself overflowing with love. And there's no security in your life. We know this. We feel it at times. If that's the case, you're living as a functional legalist. As if our problem was just on the surface. Just need a dose of the right living. And if we live that way, here's the result. We do more fruit nailing. Back one. There you go. More fruit nailing than internal repentance from the heart. You're thinking, what in the world does that mean? We do more fruit nailing than internal repentance from the heart if you live this way. Paul Tripp, an author I like to read, shares this absurd scenario. And imagine it with me for a minute. It's absurd, but um, it, it's harvest season now, isn't it? In Oregon, we've got things happening and being picked and pulled and, and eaten and enjoyed. And it's that time of year of harvest. And, uh, you know, imagine, imagine a husband and, and wife uh, who've had this apple tree in their backyard for years. And this apple tree just always produces these brown, just dry, inedible apples year after year. They haven't taken care of this tree. It's just there, uh, you know, shriveled. They're barely hanging on. And imagine, you know, Robin says to me, um, why do we even have this tree? It's a waste of time. It's a waste in our backyard. Why do we even have it? Imagine my response. You know, I'm going to fix this tree on Saturday. I'm going to fix this tree. And I, on Saturday, I go out and gather the materials I need. And I've got, my, got some hedge cutters. And I've got um, a ladder. And I've got a nail gun. And I got three great barrels of, you know, those delicious Fuji apples. And that's my materials that I need to fix this tree. And I go out there with the ladder and I stand up and I... I, I, I lop off all these dead branches and kind of get rid of the brown ones. And I take this nail gun and I boom, 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 nail these beautiful apples to this tree, if that was even possible. But just nail these beautiful apples to this tree. Now, if you were to stand back, it would look absolutely beautiful. From the window, I might get, well, that's a miracle. What did you do? It looks amazing. Actually, you should probably think it was crazy. But you get the idea. But what kind of fruit is that tree going to produce next season? Brown, dry, shriveled apples. When you and I, when we live as a legalist, we spend more time in our life nailing fruit to the tree rather than addressing the root. That's what we're getting at. That's the, the thrust of Jesus' words. The root, who in this case is dead, this tree. It's dead. You're just treating the symptom, aren't you? By replacing the apples with nails. When the problem is deeper. 
because I can't, I can't bear the thought of exposing what's really going on inside. But Jesus knows. And ultimately, over time, it comes out, doesn't it? We know that. When life shakes us up, that's when it does happen in the, those situations. We know at times we're more like that junk drawer. Jesus speaks, he says, of the heart. It's the place where our sin comes from. And he lists a bunch we read there. He says, from out of the heart these come. These come from out of the heart, he says, this list. They come from from inside you. He's telling them, the root's the problem. Your causal core's the problem. And what you and I need is a radical change of heart. Not just fruit nailing. You and I need a radical change. That's why we sang it from the inside out today. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's internal. It's heart repentance. It's seeing as Chesterton did, I'm the issue. It's inside of me. That's what the gospel is. It's seeing that. Chesterton got that. He knew that. It's a cleaning from the inside out, not the outside in, as the Pharisees were attempting. Nailing a bunch of fruit by washing their hands. Nailing a bunch of fruits, the exterior of your life's not going to do it. Being healthy, being fit, accomplishing tons, staying busy, pushing your limits, retiring well, raising perfect children, none of that will ultimately secure you with God. They're not bad things in of themselves at all. But if you're looking for your ultimate worth there, you're in trouble. Because all those things over time will disappear too, won't they? Our health... Our, you know, our kids go different directions at times. Um, we can't keep up the schedule we were hoping to anymore. The things we we're hoping to accomplish sometimes don't happen. And if you're living for that, for your ultimate identity, when those things do disappear, you're not just disappointed, you're absolutely crushed. And your life's undone. There's only one answer. One answer in this world, one solution the Pharisees missed. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ and being born again. Regeneration's the word. That is the answer. That is the key. It's a new birth that Jesus Christ brings from the inside out. And for those of us who've trusted that, when you do, it's His righteousness that He gives you. He'll give you all the fruit in the world, all the cash in your account in the world. When you trust Him, you get His goodness. Because if we think a little hand washing is going to do it, or even a lot of good works, we're com- the comparison is to a holy, perfect God. And when you trust Jesus Christ, He gives you that. So the question will be this, to close, will you trust in what you do or in what Jesus has done? And that goes for the Christian too. This is an ongoing struggle for us as Christians too. We're so tempted to slide back into that, that workspace, that legalism, and find our worth there. Because it, it can't be that simple, can it? That I just believe and I'm secure with Him? It can't be that good of news. And it is. There's a story in the Bible that gives us that proof. Do you know when Jesus was crucified? When He was hung on the cross, there were two thieves on the side of him. Do you remember that story? Um, there were two thieves on the side of him. It's Luke's gospel that records it. One on his side was more like the legalist. He berated Jesus as he was uh, hanging next to him on the cross and said to him, you know, aren't you some really great guy? Even like, I think they call you the Messiah. 
you know, do some fancy magic, do some good work, and get us off these crosses. Save yourself and save me if that's who you are. Who's more like the legalist? You know, just fix the situation. Fix the solution externally. That's my problem. There was another guy on the other side. That other guy pleaded with Jesus in faith, repented from his heart, and Jesus answered his plea. Here's the words from Luke. The other criminal rebuked him. That's the guy on the other side who was saying, hey, Jesus, save us. The other criminal rebuked him and said, don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly. Here he goes. He knows it. What's the problem? I am. He's got it. We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, that's Jesus in the middle, has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is the 11th hour of a criminal's life. No time to do any fruit nailing. He's dying. No time to clean up his act. He was a criminal. And yet in that moment, Jesus forgives him, cleanses him from the inside out in that instantaneous moment and says, you'll be with me in paradise. But don't you see? He's us. We're cosmic criminals. We are too. And only Jesus can give you that new heart and cleanse you from the inside out. So what do we do? We spend more time repenting. You ask in faith today if it's the first time. Christ, save me. Redeem me. I need your death on the cross for my sins. I need your righteousness. Give it to me. You ask. And we keep living that posture of repentance and faith going forward. And when you do, the irony is real fruit will actually grow on the tree from the inside out, from the root, from the inside, not nailing apples. How do I know? We close with the words of Ezekiel. Here's our final thing today. Way before Christ even came, Ezekiel had these words, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and I give you a heart of flesh. That's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of God in your heart. Isn't it great? It's so great. He does it. He gives it to you. We respond in faith. So you're going to trust what you can do or what Jesus has already done for you. Repent in faith and He will give you a new heart and declare you clean. Clean. Let's pray together. Lord, Your words are, um, they are heavy. They were meant to be probing and piercing and convicting in their, in their just clear judgment of humanity. Uh, each and every one of us stand here knowing that what is really wrong is on the inside. And Lord God, I pray that that would not discourage us today, but give us hope because there's a solution. And the solution is Jesus Christ. His work, His life, His death, His resurrection. He knew we could never wash enough to stay clean. And so He came 
to be perfect, to be clean, to live the life we couldn't, to die the death we couldn't. So give us a new heart today. Cleanse us from the inside out, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.